Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Two years ago, a letter appeared in the national news that was sent to a deceased person by the Indiana Department of Social Services. It read as follows. Your food stamps will be stopped effective March 1992 because we received notice that you have died. You may reapply if there is a change in your circumstances. Well, except for the occasional Lazarus, there haven't been too many who have seen a change in those circumstances. Welcome back this morning to our study in the Gospel of John. I trust you enjoyed hearing our founding pastor, Chris Vanover, last week. But I'm afraid I have to correct him on one point of his sermon. I really do hate to do this because I have such respect for him. But I need to correct this one thing, and it is this. It was he who was a bad influence on me and not the other way around. With that bit of nastiness out of the way, look at verse 36 with me. This is on the heels of what we looked at last time, which simply recorded in verse 35 that Jesus wept. Verse 36. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man open the eyes of the blind? also have kept this man from dying? We see in his tears the tragedy of sin, but also the glory of heaven. As we said, perhaps Jesus was weeping for Lazarus because he knew that he was calling his friend back from paradise. But not only back from heaven, but back to a wicked world where he would one day have to die again. Jesus had came down from heaven, so he knew what Lazarus was leaving behind. However, the spectators saw in his tears an evidence of his love. But some of them said, if Jesus loved Lazarus so much, why did he not just prevent his death? I wonder how many times that question has been asked after a Christian has died. If Jesus really loved them, then why didn't he heal them? But when we ask that question, let's be honest and admit we are asking that from our standpoint. When the person that we love isn't healed or rescued, we ask that only because we are the ones who have been left behind. However, the person in question is now absent from the body and present with the Lord. Now, I've lost loved ones too, but I can assure us all that they wouldn't trade places with their old lives even for a second. Why? Because they are with the Lord. And the reason why that sometimes seems to us an insufficient answer is only because we are completely unable to fully understand what that means. There is a reason we have to be given glorified bodies in heaven in order to withstand the majesty and the glory of Almighty God. So hard as it may be, we should also rejoice that they have finally made it home. But back to our text. In verse 37, perhaps they were thinking, Jesus is weeping only because he was unable to do anything. His tears that he is shedding are just tears of deep regret. In other words, nobody present really expected 
a miracle. Verse 38, And Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Where it says that Jesus was groaning in himself, in the Greek it literally means Jesus snorted. It's the word that is used of a horse in anger that is mounted by a soldier who then spurs him and leads him on into battle. And many feel that John is taking this well-known word and he is thinking of David and Goliath. When David sees the enemy of God's people and shouts, who is this that dares to defy the, enemy, or the armies of the living God? And like that, Jesus snorts in anger at the greatest enemy of mankind, which is death, which has taken away his friend Lazarus and put him in a tomb. Now, there's also a big difference between the questioning of the unbelievers and that of Martha. On the one hand, there was already deep doubts and cynicism, so deep that you could cut it with a knife. You see, the Jews that had come to comfort the family weren't simply questioning Jesus. They were really questioning his credentials as the Messiah. Martha, on the other hand, loved Jesus with all of her heart. And it was she who early, earlier recognized him as the one who received from the Father's hand everything that he asked for. While the unbelievers at the gravesite call Jesus just the man, Martha calls him Lord. Jesus now says something I'm sure no one expected when he commanded them to roll away the stone. Now, no doubt in that hot climate, the body of Lazarus has took on a distinct odor. This is why Martha said, Lord, just let it be. He has been in there for four days. Then using her King James for emphasis, she says, surely he stinketh. Martha is saying, don't ask me to roll away the stone. Because if you do, what it has been covering up will be very unpleasant. What is hidden stinks. The same is true of you and me. Sometimes to deal with the problems, we have to roll away the stone. The issue is, very often the thing we are trying to hide has festered as it has been rotting inside of us. The Lord wants to do something in our lives, but before he does, oftentimes he'll say, roll away the stone. Expose the problem. Let me have total access to the situation. Oh, Lord, not that, we say. Do we have to deal with that? I'm embarrassed about it. I'm ashamed of it. Lord, it stinketh. Lord said, I gave you a promise, Martha, but here is a prerequisite. Roll away the stone. Now, do you think that Jesus could have rolled away that stone himself? Later on, he did, his own stone. But here he says to Martha, just as he says to you and I, the promise is given, but here is the prerequisite. You must roll away the stone. 
even though what's inside stinks, let me deal with it. There's a story of Jesus being invited into the house of a man which was represented by different rooms. As they made their way through the house, certain things were exposed. The man writes, The first room he saw in the home of my heart was the living room. Nice room, Jesus said. Thanks, Lord. It's one of my favorite spots because it's relatively quiet and secluded. Jesus lit up and said, I'll meet you here every morning of every day. Before the day gets going, I'll meet you here in the early morning, and we'll talk about what lies ahead. When I walked in Israel, I needed instruction and help from my father. So morning by morning, the father spoke into my ear, giving me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to those who are weary. And now I'll do the same thing for you. The man says, what followed was great. I would come into the living room and a fire would be crackling in the fireplace and Jesus would be there ready to talk to me and listen to me. It was a great way to start the day. As time went on, things got busy, or so I thought. One day, rushing out the door to a meeting, I caught a glimpse of him sitting there and I realized I hadn't met with him for a number of mornings. I stopped in my tracks and walked sheepishly over to where he was sitting, thinking he would lecture me but he didn't. There was a smile on his face and a sparkle in his eye, and he said, as I was saying, continuing the conversation we shared the last time we were together. And I understood then truly that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He just continues to make himself available morning by morning to help me speak wisely and to navigate life successfully. But as the morning drew to a close, Jesus said, what is that room over there? Oh, that's my study. Come on in. He followed me in. I noticed that he was looking rather intently at the books on the shelves. Look, Lord, I said proudly, I've got all the latest bestsellers. Winning through intimidation. Watch out for number one. Your best life now. I'm okay. You're okay. Dress for success and awakening the giant within. Jesus asked, do these books work? Not really, I answered. <laughs> that's why I keep collecting more. How about a book trade, he asked. Sure, Lord, what do you have in mind? You give me your books, and I'll give you 66 books bound in a single volume, one that will make you unashamed to show yourself approved unto me, one that comes with an incredible guarantee that if you meditate upon it day and night, you will navigate life successfully. Well, one day the Lord said to me, from the day I came in here, I've smelled something foul. It's making me ill, not because of how it affects me, but because I know it is poisonous to you and your family. There is a toxic dump somewhere in this house, and I've determined it's in that door right down by the hall. As soon as he said this, I knew exactly what he was talking about. Yes, there was a small closet up there on the landing, just a few feet square, and in that closet behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things that I did not want anyone else to know about. And I certainly did not want Christ to see them. I knew they were dead and rotting things left over from my old life. And yet I loved them. And I wanted them so for myself that I were afraid to admit that they were there. Oh, Lord, I said, that's just an old closet. I'm going to take care of it sometime. I know it stinks, but... 
you'll grow accustomed to it. Trust me, I've had it for a number of years, and I don't even notice it anymore. Can I have a look, he asked. No, Lord, I said. I've given you entry into every room in the house of my heart, but that one closet is mine. I know it stinks, but it is mine. You're welcome to go where you want and do what you wish in every other room, but that closet belongs to me. I was angry. That's the only way I can put it. I had given him access to the library, the dining room, the living room, the workroom, the playroom, and now he was asking me about a little two-by-four closet. I said to myself, this is too much. I'm not going to give him the key. Well, he said, reading my thoughts, if you think I'm going to stay up here on the second floor with that odor, you are mistaken. I will take my bed out on the back porch. I'm certainly not going to put up with that. Then I saw him start down the stairs. When you have come to know and love Christ, the worst thing that can happen is to sense his fellowship retreating from you. I had to surrender. I'll give you the key, I said sadly. But you'll have to open the closet and clean it, for I, I haven't the strength to do it. I know, he said. I know you haven't. Just give me the key. Just authorize me to take care of that closet, and I will. All I'm asking, he replied, is that you agree with me that it stinks and that it has to go. I'll do the rest, but you must give me the permission. That's what confession is. Confession simply means to agree. That's why the Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, he'll be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So with trembling fingers, I passed the key to him. He took it from my hand, walked over the door, opened it, entered it, took out all the putrefying stuff that was rotting there and threw it away. Then he cleaned the closet and painted it, fixed it up, doing it all in just a moment's time. Oh, what victory and release to have that dead thing finally out of my life. The man finishes by saying, I had forgotten how good a house could smell. I was reminded of the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary poured ointment on Jesus, and John records the fragrance filled the whole house. In other words, the whole house smelled like Jesus. I don't know about you, but that, that really spoke to me. Now, there's also a reason why Jesus waited four days to raise Lazarus. You see, the Jews believe that the soul hovered around the body for three days after death, hoping to reenter it. They were just mostly dead for all you Princess Bride fans. But on the fourth day, after noticing that the body was beginning to decompose, the soul would depart. Only then will the death be considered completely irreversible. Now, Lazarus has been dead for four days, and his body has already started to decompose. The Jews would have recognized, therefore, that only a divine miracle could restore him back to life. Look at verse 40 with me. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you have sent me. When you look at Jesus Christ, 
do you see what he says in verse 40? You are looking at the glory of God through the filter of a human nature. Only there can you see absolute beauty. And this will draw your heart out and reorder your loves. It is his highness and his lowness, his deity and his humanity together that does that. So first of all, we see who, who he is with Mary and Martha. He is the God-man. Jonathan Edwards, many years ago, preached and then published a sermon called The Excellency of Christ. It is based on the place in Revelation where it says that Jesus Christ is both a lion and a lamb. He's the lion who is a lamb. He's a lamb who is also a lion. His thesis is that Jesus Christ because he is both God and man, combines diverse and usually opposite excellencies and glories into one person, and therefore it makes him of unsurpassing beauty. It's because he's both of those things. It's because he combines the highness and the lowness together. Edwards writes, Despite his high claims, he is never pompous. You never see him standing on his own dignity. He is tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence, unhesitating authority with a complete lack of self-absorption, unbending convictions without the slightest lack of approachability, power without insensitivity, enthusiasm without fanaticism, holiness without hypocrisy, and passion without prejudice. Nothing he does falls short. In fact, he is always surprising you and taking your breath away because he's inc incomparably better than you could have ever imagined for yourself. Why? These are the surprises of what true perfection looks like. And I think Edwards was absolutely right. When you see these things brought together, the highness and the lowness, the power and the humility, the greatness with no pomposity, it attracts you. You feel it, do you not? In the same way, you can't look at the sun directly without burning out your eyes, so you have to look at it through a filter, and then and only then can you see the beauty of it. You can then see the flames. That's how it is with Christ. I love that. The lesson Jesus had for Martha and therefore for us also is that in spiritual matters, believing is seen. He said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, these words, seeing and believing, sound natural to us because of the expression, seeing is believing. But we can hardly miss the fact that Jesus puts it the other way around. Seeing is believing, we say, Believing is seeing, says the Lord Jesus. Dr. Harry Ironside used to tell the story of an old man who understood this. He was a Scotsman who on one occasion was making his way to a meeting in Aberdeen. On the way, he was overtaken by a young theological student also on his way to the meeting. And as they had much in common, they continued on their way together. At lunchtime, they turned to a grassy embankment to eat their lunch, first thanking God for the food. 
They had good conversation, but before they started out, the old man suggested that they each pray, asking God what they would need for that evening. Well, the young student was embarrassed, but he agreed, and the older man prayed. He had three requests. First, he reminded the Lord that he was hard of hearing, and if he did not get a seat well towards the front of the meeting hall, he would get little from the sermon that evening, so that he, he asked that a seat be kept for him. Second, he told the Lord that his shoes were badly worn, that they were hardly fit for the city. He needed a new pair, although he did not have the money to buy them. And finally, he asked for a place to sleep that night, for he knew no one in the city from whom he could seek accommodations. As he made each request, the old man thanked the Lord in advance for answering them. The theological student was aghast at what he considered to be the impertinence of the old man. And he determined to check up on him later to see what would become of such prayers. That night, they reached the meeting a bit late. The hall was crowded. There was not even one seat left. The student thought, we will now see what becomes of these kind of prayers. However, someone came out, and the old man managed to squeeze into a place near the door where he stood with one hand cupped to his ear. Just then, a young lady in the front row turned and saw him. She called an usher. Sir, she said, my father asked me to save this seat for him, saying that if he should be late, I should offer it to someone else. Evidently, he has been detained. Will you please go and offer it over to that old man who has his hand to his ear, standing just inside the door? The usher followed her instructions, and so in just a few minutes, the first request of the old man had been answered. Then came the time for prayer. In Scotland in those days, some people always knelt for prayer, while others reverently stood. The old man was the kneeling kind, the young lady was the standing kind. Standing thus behind her guest and looking down, she could not help but notice the condition of his shoes. Her father ran a shoe store. So afterwards, she politely raised the subject and asked the old man if she might take him to the father's store, even though it was closed tonight, and give him a pair of shoes. So petition two was answered. Finally, while in the store, the young woman inquired where the old man was staying that night, and he answered that God had not yet shown him the room. Well, she said, I think we have the room for you. The Reverend Dr. So-and-so was to use our guest room tonight, but he has telegraphed to say that he is not coming. Will you use it? The next day, when the theological student inquired how the old man made out, he learned that God answers the prayers of his believing people. I wish I could tell you that I have that kind of faith, but I don't. And so I say for all of us, God increase our faith but what if we do pray and God says no when something difficult occurs we rarely know what the alternative circumstance the Lord may be saving us from experiencing but one thing is for sure we would always be grateful for the way he answered our prayers if we saw everything from his viewpoint now in the next verse we get to hear Jesus pray and Jesus didn't pray in public very frequently. His communion with the Father was not like that of the Pharisees who loved to be seen on the street corners praying at great length. No, Jesus communed privately with his Father moment by moment. Here, however, he prays audibly saying, Father, I'm praying aloud in order that they who are watching might know what's happening. Verse 43, 
Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. When Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. My question is, if Lazarus was fourth, who was first, second, and third? Thank you, Tommy. Um, the actual wording of Jesus' command was succinct, terse, and almost abrupt in its simplicity. The Greek text literally reads, Lazarus, here, outside. You can imagine him stumbling blindly towards that beloved voice that had called him. The man who had died came forth. One day, yet future, Lazarus, along with everyone who has died in Christ, will be summoned like that from the beyond. Not to resume life again in bodies that will again to, to die, but to enjoy eternal life in bodies that cannot suffer, cannot fall ill, cannot die, and cannot decay. This will not be just mere resuscitation. This will be the glorious day of resurrection. One day, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. But on this day, only Lazarus was summoned. One Puritan writer said, if Jesus had not named Lazarus when he shouted, he would have emptied the whole cemetery. Jesus called Lazarus and raised him from the dead. But since Lazarus was bound, he could not walk to the door of the tomb, so God's power must have carried him along. It was an unquestioned miracle that even the most hostile spectator could not deny. But then, turning to his disciples and to his followers and to the family, Jesus said, all right, I resurrected Lazarus, but I'm giving you the privilege and the responsibility of loosening him. Now, why would I mention that? Whenever someone is born again, the Lord says to you who know them, I resurrected them, now you loose them by praying for them, sharing with them, and standing with them. Now true, we cannot bring the physical dead back to life, but we can bring the living word of Christ to them. We can do preparatory work, and we can also do work afterwards. We have to also help to remove stones. What kind of stones? Stones of ignorance? error, prejudice, and despair. After the miracle, we can help the new Christian by unwinding the grave clothes of doubt, fear, introspection, and discouragement. The miracle is Christ, but there is work for us to do if we will do it. Will we? Jesus used Ananias to reach Paul, even after he had been struck down on the road to Damascus. He used Peter to reach Cornelius, and he used Philip to preach to the Ethiopian. Do you doubt that he would also use us if we are ready to do such work? As A.W. Pink says, there is no higher privilege this side of heaven than for us to be used of the Lord in rolling away gravestones and removing grave clothes. I also want us to see that the experience of Lazarus is a good illustration of what happens to a sinner when he trusts in the Savior. 
Lazarus was dead in the same way that all sinners are spiritually dead. He was also decayed because death and decay always go together. Likewise, all lost people are spiritually dead, but some may be more decayed than others, but no one can be more dead than anyone else. Lazarus was raised from the dead by the power of God, and all who trust in Christ have been given life and lifted out of the graveyard of sin. Lazarus was set free from his grave clothes and given new liberty. You'll find him in the next few verses seated with Christ at the table in the same way that all believers will one day be seated with Christ in the heavenly places enjoying spiritual food and fellowship. Jesus' raising of Lazarus was a preview of the divine power he will display when he raises all the dead on that last day. So to sum all of that up as we finish this morning, the story of Lazarus provides us a visual of salvation. We know that Lazarus was dead. Jesus calls his name in the next scene. We see him struggling out of the tomb, still bound in his grave clothes. So we could say that Lazarus went through three distinct stages. His first phase was he was dead. Where were you and I before we came to Christ? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But by a miracle of Christ, we were called from our spiritual death and brought back into a new life. Lazarus' second phase was he had to be freed from his grave clothes. That can be our problem also. I would venture to say that everybody in this room needs to get, a lit, get rid of a lid of, uh, I'll get it here in a minute, get rid of a little bit of baggage that is holding us down. Finally, we learned there are a few verses later, religious leaders were plotting how to kill Lazarus. Why? Because of his testimony. He is now dangerous. So we see that Lazarus was dead, defeated, and then dangerous because he has been a born-again witness of Jesus Christ. Now, Lazarus rose with a mortal, corruptible body that would one day die again. But Jesus rose as the conqueror of death who is the first fruits of all those who will fall asleep. As the Bible says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Because of his resurrection, all believers, including Lazarus, will one day receive glorified, incorruptible bodies. Then, as Paul writes, the perishable will put on the imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So I ask you this morning, where are you in the stages that we looked at? Are you still in your sins? Or are you saved but bound by certain sins? If you are unsure, please see me after church so we can talk, because there is nothing more important than your eternal soul. Let us pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you are the resurrection and the life. You have called us, Lord, from being dead and from being in this gross darkness. It's even hard for me to remember back then before I knew you, Lord, just how lost that I was and how hopeless and how without any kind of purpose, like, a, like, like the word says, it's like blind men leading blind men. And so I pray, Father, that you would take your word this morning. You know every heart in here, 
in every heart that will hear this sermon online, and you know exactly what we need, whether we need to be saved, sanctified, or just strengthened and encouraged. Be that to us. We ask in your name. Amen.